This podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Vital Smarts. From over 30 years of research, Vital Smarts has found two behaviours that arise when we're faced with a tough conversation. What you might find yourself doing is holding back, not knowing what to say until one day you explode. Vital Smarts will teach you the speak up skills to be able to talk to almost anyone about almost anything. So visit vitalsmarts.com.au forward slash DSTM for a special listener offer. Hi, Potties. Producer Jane Neild here. Now, you might have heard in episode 92, we spoke about a live event at Corrie's Bookshop recently, hosted by Brendan Donoghue, of course, Carrie's husband. It was Nikki Sava talking about her brand new book, Plots and Prayers. So as a little special bonus for Don't Shoot the Messenger listeners, here it is for you. Hello everyone and welcome to The Book Pod, the fortnightly podcast that brings writers, books and readers together via the digital world. I'm Corrie Perkin and we have a very special episode for you today. A few nights ago we had an event at my bookshop which actually, funnily enough, is my bookshop based in Hawksburn here in Melbourne and our special guest was journalist Nikki Sava. Nikki has written an extraordinary book which looks at the downfall of Malcolm Turnbull in 2018 and the rise of Scott Morrison and the treacherous shenanigans that occurred in the Liberal Party room. Nikki Sava has been a journalist in Australia for more than 40 years. She used to work with the Sun News Pictorial back in the day and now, of course, she's a regular contributor for The Australian and she appears on the Insiders program on the ABC and so on. She has not stopped being intrigued by what makes political power and our politicians tick. What happened with the, this book, how it came about, was she vowed after her last book, which was on the downfall of Tony Abbott, she vowed she'd never write another book. And she found herself the day after Malcolm Turnbull was rolled back in August last year on the phone, hitting her contact book, hitting her list of connections, both inside the Liberal Party and also externally. And what came together was uh, just people venting in anger, in grief. They were fully prepared before any party whip could get to them, before any acting leader or current leader said, no, shut it down. They talked. And she had all of this stuff on the record. It was so compelling that inevitably a book deal came out of it. And I'm so glad. So I guess daily journalism's loss, and let's face it, newspapers aren't a patch on what they used to be, but their loss is kind of the book industry's gain. And this book makes a riveting read. Plots and Prayers, in its two-week life format so far this year, has gone to number six on the top 10 Australian bestseller list, which is an extraordinary achievement. And last week, the button was pressed on its second reprint. So join us live at my bookshop with Nikki Sava being interviewed by our friend of the pod, journalist Brendan Donoghue. Thanks, Corrie. How good's Australia, hey? Hey? How good's Hawksburn? Hey? How good's the book? I just finished it, actually. I finished about 5.30 because I think you really should read a book before you interview anyone. It helps. It's gone to the pain of writing a book, the blood, sweat and tears has gone into it. So congratulations, firstly, on the book. I think it's an absolute ripper. And, of course, it's a a dark political thriller. We know the result, so I'm not giving anything away, but I've written down a few notes here. So revenge, treachery, lies, deceit, backstabbing, 
front stabbing, <laughs> tears, agony, anger, outrage, disloyalty, the asshole faction, <laughs> the monkey potters, monkey potters, uh, seven pms and eleven years, Barnaby's doodle. That's doodle singular, not doodle doodles. <laughs> The problems with the doodle and the bonking ban, all here in a political thriller. It's a draw, dropping, dropping the portrait of the madness of the month of uh, August last year. The real story of, well, I sort of break it down to five power-hungry men: uh, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, Peter Dutton, um, Scott Morrison, and Matthias Corman, who we'll hear a lot about tonight because. Um, he may have been up to some skullduggery. And, of course, there's a lot of cameos by a lot of other politicians, including Greg Hunt from Victoria, who, um, who uh, doesn't come out of the book too well, I might say. <laughs> so we'll start off with uh, an obvious question. You've got a lot of cooperation in, in writing this book because it g- goes into the minutiae, particularly the WhatsApp groups, texts, phone calls, they're all on the record. So when you ring politicians now, they can go back through their phone and say, yes, I did text him or her that night. So tell us what sort of um, cooperation you got and tell us those who didn't want to talk to you, which might speak volumes to what we're going to talk about later on with (laughs) Matthias. Well, um, I began speaking to people for the book on the day after Turnbull was deposed. So he went on the Friday and I began ringing people on the Saturday. And um, the reason I did that was because I wanted to speak to them while their emotions were still raw uh, because it had obviously been a really traumatic week uh, for a lot of people and it had also been a very chaotic week. So uh, I wanted their early recollections before they'd had a chance to sort of second-guess themselves and why they'd done what they did. And um, I just wanted them to be honest. And at that stage, um, they were wanting to tell what happened. They were wanting to give their version of events, uh, for which I was very grateful. Um, not, Not just because I was writing a book, but because I thought um, I wanted to know why they had done what they did. And I thought if I wanted to know, then others would want to know too. And I thought they owed it to people, to the voters, to explain why they had done it. Um, So it was a a pretty intense um, period still. A lot of them were still highly emotional about what had happened. Um, A lot of them were in tears. A lot of them were angry. Um, But they were talking, not all of them. Um, I spoke to Dutton on the Sunday after it happened. I spoke to Jane Hume, um, who was really at the centre of the uh, bullying allegations uh, from the outset. And later on, she kind of uh, stepped back from that uh, a bit. Uh, But Almost everyone uh, was prepared to speak to me. Matthias Corman did not, um, even though I had spoken to Matthias the day before the first vote on the Tuesday. 
And I had uh, been speaking regularly to Matthias as well as to Peter Dutton because I, they were the two central characters who helped Turnbull keep the government together. And I thought if there was going to be um, any move against Turnbull, it was going to come from them. Once they lost um, support or um, once they lost confidence in, in Turnbull, um, then it was yeah. obvious it was going to be and over. Mat- Matthias was pledging loyalty all the time to Turnbull and said he had nothing to do with Peter Dutton's plot. And he had nothing to do with Morrison eventually coming up through the middle. Well, um, when I spoke to Matthias um, on that Monday, um, as I say, because I'd spoken to him before, and um, it was obvious that um, things were moving, and I said to him, are you still holding to your position? Are you going to stick with Malcolm? And he said, yes, I am. I've spoken to my wife. Um, I'm not moving. If Malcolm goes down, I'll go down with him. So I said, so you're there until the bitter end. Yes, he said, the bitter end. Until the ship goes down. Now, we'll just sidetrack, but we'll come back to Matthias. There's a, a room in Parliament called the Monkey Pod. Could you explain why it's called the Monkey Pod and why the people who go in there, what they do in there and why they're called the Monkey Podders? Right. Well, um, it's quite a small room with a very large table and it's made out of monkey pod wood, which is a very dark brown and it's very highly polished. And it probably seats about um, 30 people. And it's usually held for, you know, small uh, meetings with um, between ministers and stakeholders. But for the last couple of years, it's been um, the meeting place for the right-wing faction. And Is that the, a, the three A's, uh, Abbott, Abetz and Andrews, Kevin Andrews from Victoria? They're, they're and the, also known as the arsehole faction. <laughs> in the book, that it's was... in the book, I'm, I'm only quoting. You're quoting. Um, that's what Christopher Pine said. Christopher Pine them. said. Yes. Now, just wrapping this, so they go in there and they plot away, and of course people are always asking who was supporting who, but Christopher Pine's office happens to be, fantastically for the book, right next to the monkey pod, and the wall is not that thick. <laughs> so Christopher Pine was listening to the monkey podders plot away in that fateful week, and he heard, he says, he heard Matthias Corman say, We'll, t- we'll go to Pine, not to Greg Hunt. We'll try- see if we can get Chrissy Pine to be the deputy to Peter Dutton. Yes, um, he heard you t- them. You take up the story. Um, well, that's right. He heard them say that, and he also heard them uh, say which members uh, they were going to try and recruit to their cause. So as soon as he heard the names, he'd race off and um, try to speak to them first. But um, Greg Hunt... Um, was chosen by Dutton as his running mate. And Dutton later admitted to me um, that that was probably a mistake because uh, Hunt cost him votes. Um, Hunt is a is a kind of an interesting character. I mean, he was quite an effective environment minister and he does a good job, I think, as a health minister, but he's got a really terrible temper. And um, he has been prone to abusing colleagues in front of other colleagues. And the Victorians especially 
um, don't like him. So um, the fact that he uh, copped an absolute pizzling in the vote for the deputy leadership reflected his deep unpopularity uh, within the party. He was more unpopular than Julie Bishop in the the actual leadership vote. Didn't he get nine votes and she got 11 or something oh, like that? Or was it? Well, actually, he got 19. 19, sorry. Which is almost double Julie's, unfortunately. But um, that was a tactical thing. Um, the most interesting... It's an interesting story about the deputy leadership, actually, because uh, Josh Frydenberg and Greg Hunt were best mates. And they had reached an agreement years ago that um, if anything came up, that Hunt would be the one to go for it and Josh would hold back because Hunt had got there first um, into Parliament. Um, Except, you know, when this came up, Josh thought, oh, well, who knows, my time might not come again. So he went round and and saw Hunt and basically said, sorry, all bets are off. (laughs) Change circumstances, can you say? Um, the fuse was lit a long time ago. Obviously, Malcolm Turnbull rolled Tony Abbott, and Tony Abbott did everything in his power to undermine Malcolm Turnbull. But he didn't really. Was he the stalking horse? Some people said he was a. Dutton was a stalking horse for um, for Abbott. That Abbott planned a comeback. That Abbott would run, lose to Bill Shorten, and then Abbott would um, Dutton would run, lose to Bill Shorten, and then. Tony Abbott would come back as the leader of the opposition and win the next election. That was put around by Abbott supporters. That was put about by Abbott and um, also by Credlin. That was, you know, sort of known as the fantasy option. <laughs> um, but but that was another thing that cost Dutton votes inside the party because um, although. Uh, Abbott had the support of, you know, people like Abetz and um, and Andrews, and and so on. Um, inside the wider Liberal Party, he was toxic, and the very thought that there might be an avenue for Abbott to come back, either into the ministry or into the leadership, actually cost Dutton votes. And Dutton was trying to go out of his way to reassure people that there was no way that he was going to be bringing um, Abbott back. But Abbott was going out there telling everyone that he was on a promise. So to be um, in the cabinet. To be in, in the, the cabinet. cabinet. So which um, cost? Which cost Dutton? Which cost Dutton yeah. votes as well? Malcolm uh, Turnbull is sitting there in the Prime Minister's office having a cup of tea, pacing up and down, and he's telling anyone who comes into his office who supports the plot or supports Dutton that Peter Dutton will not be sworn in as Prime Minister because under Section 44.1 of the Constitution he has received basically profit under the Crown through his childcare centres with his wife, and he was saying that he would call the Governor-General Peter Cosgrove and so do not swear him in. So we were almost on the brink of a constitutional crisis, which put the Attorney-General we in were. a shocking position, the Solicitor-General, Stephen O'Donoghue, in a shocking position, and Malcolm Turnbull was calling for more and more advice so that he could tell the Dutton supporters, don't go for him because he won't be sworn in. Yes. Um, well, that was another thing that uh, Dutton believes uh, cost him votes. Um, Turnbull asked Christian Porter 
to contact the Solicitor General to get a ruling on whether Dutton was uh, eligible or not to sit in the Parliament on the basis of um, his wife's of Dutton's wife's investments in childcare centres, and the money was paid into a trust, and therefore Dutton was presumably receiving some kind of benefit. So Porter um, drafted a letter to the Solicitor General to ask him for a ruling and uh, Turnbull, of course, was very anxious to get the results of what, this legal opinion. What time opinion. did he text, um, did he text <laughs> so, the Attorney General Christian Porter in the morning to see if the advice had come through? Well, he was texting the Solicitor General As well, and, and yeah. ringing the Solicitor General to say, you know, where's the opinion, what's happening with the opinion? And uh, Porter then wrote to the Solicitor-General to instruct him not to speak to any other member of the government, including the Prime Minister, other than himself. And once the opinion was uh, completed, it was to be handed to him and he was not to communicate in any way with the Prime Minister, which was quite an extraordinary um, turn of events. And during um, his negotiations with um, ministers, including Cormann and others, who were uh, moving uh, to Dutton, uh, Turnbull was arguing that the Governor-General would not swear in Dutton because he would not be eligible and he would threaten to get the Governor-General on the phone then and there uh, to said, tell him... said, I'll get him on the speakerphone. I'll get him on the phone now <coughs> and uh, tell him that he can't be sworn in. And he was prepared to write to the Governor-General as the outgoing Prime Minister to instruct him not to swear in Dutton if Dutton had been elected um, leader... And um, I sort of put a line in the book saying in 1975, um, the Governor-General sacked the government at the behest of... um, sacked a Labor government at the behest of a Liberal Prime Minister. But this was a Liberal Prime Minister seeking to have his own government sacked. So that would have been the most extraordinary... A turn of events if that had happened. Yeah. The biggest crisis since 1975. And Christian Porter, who has potential one day to perhaps be the leader of the uh, Coalition Liberal Party, he wanted to play it so dead straight that history recorded that he did the right thing, the appropriate thing legally. He had a resignation letter in his pocket when he went and saw the Prime Minister. He did. Um, he told uh, Turn- Turnbull was about to have a press conference and he was going to canvas uh, Dutton's eligibility or lack of it. And uh, Porter said to him, if you go out there and say that, I will go out and publicly contradict you and I will tender my resignation. So that would have um, created another crisis. There was a lot of people threatening to resign or actually resigning in in that week. How... um well put together or, or not, was the Dutton campaign. There's a lot in the book about how it was pretty ramshackle and when they even met in the monkey pod room that they had to rush off and get a projector, then a junior to plug it in because no one knew how to work it yes. so they could show on the screen how many votes they had. Because yeah. they were telling some people they had 50 votes, which was way over the top, and they eventually had 35 or something in the first round vote. 
Well, um, I think what happened was that Dutton probably told people he shouldn't have told that he was going to make a move and then, of course, they told others and it ended up in the paper on uh, the Friday. So his plans, um, you know, got a bit of early publicity that that wasn't uh, very helpful. But when uh, Dutton was flying to Canberra on Sunday evening with Steve Chobo, who was one of his very good friends, he briefed Chobo on the plane saying that he and Corman had masterminded the entire thing, uh, that they had wargamed everything and they believed that they had all the numbers to topple Malcolm and he was contemplating an early move against him. So that was the Sunday night which was the day after Dutton had actually sent out a tweet saying he was completely loyal to Turnbull <laughs> and had no intention of um, of challenging him. So there was the odd lie so told we had here and Dutton there. swearing complete loyalty, Matthias Corman swearing complete loyalty. I think as soon as they start talking that. like that, that's when you've got to start worrying. You're gone. <laughs> so let's let's have a little look at Scott Morrison and what he did. He was very careful. Talk about tiptoeing through the tulips and not stepping on any of them. But he had some people underneath him, a bit like the duck on the water. What was going on there with Morrison's people? Well... Up here, um, Morrison was doing um, everything that he possibly could to try to save Turnbull from himself. He did turn. He did tell Turnbull in advance, "Don't bring on the leadership. Don't don't put your leadership on the line because you know that never um, goes well." But while he was, you know, up here um, doing his best to be like a clean skin to have clean hands his lieutenants and bear in mind these are people that he shared a house with in Kingston and prayed with and prayed with um, (laughs) regularly they were part of a prayer Prayer group group. Stuart Robert and Stuart Robert and Alex Hawke and Steve Iron and they all met um, in the Kingston apartment on Sunday night Clearly, when it was obvious something was uh, going to happen, they didn't know what exactly would happen, but they were prepared for any eventuality. And so they had everything um, laid out. They had wargamed it so that if a move was made, um, they had uh, a number of people who would vote a certain way and... um, Ensure really that once Turnbull was down on his knees, he wouldn't be able to get back up. And Morrison, factionally, has always sort of played a bit of a left-right middle. Uh, he might maybe Pentecostal, but he says he's a social conservative, but with a social conscience. So he sort of he can flip around a bit in the middle there and gather votes from each side. Yes, well, he's never been considered one of the right yeah. by the right, and um, in fact. They don't like him all that much and they don't trust him either. Um, They hold him responsible in part for what happened with Abbott because uh, they think that he was instrumental in um, firing up the West Australians to move the spill motion against 
Abbott when we had that first empty chair spill. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that um, Morrison was behind that and um, also that he was behind the undermining of hockey. So he has a bit of a reputation inside the party and people um, get surprised when I say that uh, Dutton is actually um, better liked inside the parliamentary party than Morrison is because Dutton is very upfront. You know, you know where you stand with Dutton. You know what he thinks. You know what he's going to do. Um, but with Morrison, um, you're never really quite sure. So um, in Victoria, Peter Dutton's seen as a right-wing Queensland former Queensland copper, Mr. Potato Head, poison, poison mm. down here. Mm. But you were you were talking about how he does have friends across the faction. That a lot of people say he's actually quite a nice guy. But he sticks to his guns. He, he he will say what he wants to say to your face. Whereas with Morrison, it's a little bit different. Yes, and um, how it works out. That, that that's the case. And there were um, a few Victorians who voted for um, Dutton. In any case, uh, Jason Wood, for instance, uh, was um, had got very angry with uh, Turnbull round about January of uh, 2018 and rang him and uh, told him that if he didn't start, you know, doing what Jason Wood wanted, um, then he, Jason, was going to start counting the numbers for Dutton. Yeah, and uh, Malcolm Turnbull rang Jason Wood when it was really on and said, are you behind it all? <laughs> this is That's the bloke right. who did, couldn't, couldn't recognise the difference between orgasm and orgasm and, and an organism in Parliament. <laughs> Just by the way. Yeah. Just incidentally, yes. Um, so, so fatal mistakes by um, fatal mistakes by Malcolm Turnbull. I think you're right that he he may he may have been a good politician, but he wasn't a very good prime minister. Other it's way around, really. Sorry, mm. he, not, not a, a good prime minister, not a good politician. Not sorry, a good politician. I find I find they're sort of contradictory because one follows the other or goes hand in glove with the other. Can you just explain a bit about that? Well, uh, you have to be both. You have to be both a good politician and a good prime minister. You can't um, just rely on one um, to get you through. And um, Malcolm um, reinstituted cabinet processes, which had been gone missing uh, during the Abbott years. Um, But what that meant was that it it slowed down decision-making and he liked to say that he used his cabinet ministers as his advisers, um, which is great in a way, but the prime minister has to make the call. If there, you know, there are times when uh, cabinets uh, split 50-50, then it's up to the prime minister to make the call and to make the right judgment. And Malcolm's judgment was not always the best. And the key question that a lot of people ask since um, what happened in August is, is why isn't Malcolm Turnbull the Prime Minister? Now, we know what happened to him, but they, how much did the climate change slash the national energy guarantee, the NEG, that whole debate, have to do with really kicking it off through August? That was, that was the catalyst, right? But it could have been anything if it wasn't energy it probably would have been a religious freedom and it wouldn't have mattered what he'd done on on energy Abbott was not going to accept it Um, every time it looked as if there might be a resolution on this 
then Abbott would switch position or get one of his um, acolytes to go out there and uh, campaign against it. So he made it his mission to make it impossible for Turnbull to find a resolution uh, to the problem. And um, this was not just over a couple of weeks, this was over months. And really it didn't matter what the issue was, Abbott would find um, a reason not to accept it and to undermine Turnbull as a result. And after the first um, ballot, um, Malcolm Turnbull said, um, I'll, have a, I'll have another one if you bring me 43 signatures, which basically means you're gone because that's a majority. That was a mistake? Well, uh, n- not really. I, I think m- the minute that the vote was read out on Tuesday where 35 people voted against um, Turnbull, his fate was sealed. That vote was way too high. If he'd had a vote um, in the 20s, he might have been able to um, last a bit longer. But the reason his vote was so high was because the Morrison people voted for Dutton. So um, Morrison's people, it was a quite a strategic move. They had forewarning that the ballot papers were going to be issued. So they had, as I said, planned in advance what they would do. And um, a number of them, Craig Laundy thinks as many as 10, uh, voted for Dutton, not because they wanted Dutton, but they wanted to inflate Dutton's vote and make it impossible for Turnbull to, to survive. Yeah. And, of course, um, a, a victim of the whole thing was uh, Julie Bishop, who'd been a loyal deputy for how many years? Ten years or so? I'm yeah, trying 11, to think. Yeah. 11 years. Um, and she she stood but got a, very, a small vote. It was 11 votes. 11 For, votes. 11 votes left, has left Parliament like a number of former ministers and senior Liberals. Yes. Well, um, that was a strategic decision taken by the moderates. Um, they had been going through the numbers and they realised that Julie would have beaten Morrison in the ballot. Uh, no doubt about that. But then the Morrison people would not have voted for her against Dutton, so Dutton would have beaten her. And the last thing the moderates wanted was Dutton as Prime Minister, um, mainly because they knew they would be wiped out in Victoria, for instance, yeah. and also um, in South Australia. He would do well in, in Queensland, but not elsewhere. So there's a lot of ringing around and texting that a lot of MPs, ministers, etc. were were hearing from people who normally wouldn't say boo to them, (laughs) including um, didn't Julie Bishop talk to uh, Tony Abbott about the potential for him voting for her? And what what did he say to her? She did. Well, well, she won't go into details. Uh, When I um, interviewed her, I said, how did that go? And she held her mobile phone out here and and, um, subsequently she told people that uh, he'd said something to her like, why would I vote for Malcolm in a skirt? Um. So she was um, from, you know, what I've heard from, you know, others, because surprisingly enough, Tony Abbott doesn't speak to me. Uh, (laughs) 
can't understand that, but anyway. You've got to buy a bike. Uh, <laughs> he, um, she is number one on his enemies list, and I think I'm number two. Number two. Yes. Congratulate. Well, he, well, he, he was flipping around on the Paris Agreement. He agreed to it, didn't he, originally? Then he left it, and then, he, and then during the, um, his loss in Moringa, he, he said that he would support it. Because there was a new energy minister in in Australia. Yes, yes. So he was flip-flopping all over the place as well. He was. He was a man of conviction. So many convictions. (laughs) (laughs) One to suit every occasion. Um, Malcolm Turnbull talked about, um, you know, dark players in the media. Tell tell the people here tonight about how the effect of, um, well, you work with Australian, but also, say, News Corp and also Sky particularly, Sky the cable... So for people who don't know, there's a thing called Sky News on Fox. It's on Foxtel, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah. Sky After Dark uh, and Fox all these. Fox After Dark. Yeah, yeah, not too many people uh, watch it. Most people watch Channel 7 in Melbourne, but um, a, few, <laughs> a few people. I think the highest rating is Paul Murray. It's 50,000 nationally. So it is a minuscule audience, but it's in, important politically. Can you just sort of paint the picture about, because I, I personally never, ever used to watch it, but I sort of started last year. Because pe- well, people kept saying blah 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 blah, and I started you know come home, choice between Footy Classified or you know Paul Murray. That's <laughs> um, an in joke. Uh, so talk a little bit about yeah, you know, say News Corp. Um, there was you know talk about Ru- Rupert Murdoch wasn't backing Turnbull that um, he, he you know Turnbull dissed him or something, and also the effect of Sky News because I remember on the on the day. Paul Murray was almost yelling at the TV, saying, this is it, get out of your chairs. This is to the MPs in Parliament. Get out of the chairs, go in there and vote now against Turnbull. It was like a big call to arms, like he was, he was the Prime Minister. Well, Alan Jones, who's also on Sky as well as on 2GB, was ringing and texting MPs and telling them not to vote for Turnbull. And um, that was a constant uh, theme on on Sky, uh, from Bolt, from Murray, from Credlin, um, all of them. And as you say, not a big audience, but in Parliament House in Canberra, Sky's wallpaper. It's on in every office. That's what they watch. And um, they allow themselves to be influenced. They are, they are in a bubble, aren't they? They're, they're in a bubble. And, um, you know, if it was me, I'd probably turn the TV off and, um, and watch something else. But they were taken in um, and allowed themselves to be influenced. I, I spoke to um, Luke Howarth, who was uh, planning to get up on Tuesday morning and ask for... Turnbull to um, to resign, to tender his resignation, um, to ask him what had led up to that, because I'd spoken to Luke on the night of the Longman by-election, um, where the Liberals didn't do too badly, and he wasn't all that concerned about the vote on that night. He said, "Oh well, it's a by-election. We didn't really expect to lose, uh, to win rather. So you know, it's not really of much consequence." And um, then after that, things changed. And he told me that he was on a flight from um, Canberra to Queensland and he got off the plane and rang his office and asked them how things were going. And he said that Ray Hadley had been on radio 
and Hadley had said that Dutton was going to challenge and um, it was time for the bedwetters um, to get a grip and um, he was giving giving out uh, the uh, phone numbers and email addresses of MPs and telling listeners that they should contact their MPs and tell them not to vote for Turnbull. And Howarth got off the plane and his office told him that about 20 people had rang his office on the basis of what um, Hadley yeah. had said uh, to tell him not to vote uh, for Turnbull. And there had been other events where people were saying to him, you either get rid of him or we'll get rid of you. So at that point he rang Dutton. And, of course, when it went to the vote, it was fairly minuscule, the victory, wasn't it? It's like three, three votes, three people decided, in effect, whether it was Scott Morrison or Peter Dutton as the Prime Minister. Yes, only a very small um, margin, very yeah. small margin um, which is, I think, quite interesting. Um, obviously, Morrison has enhanced his reputation inside the party because of his uh, victory, so unexpected. Um this doesn't mean that they like him. They've never liked him. And um, I think there's still a lot of uh, distrust uh, in the higher echelons of, of the government. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out in the next couple of years. So in Victoria, we had the November state election where Labor romped it in, uh, more so than they even thought, and um, Matthew Guy was sort of smashed out of the park. And because of that, a lot of people thought that in Victoria the um, the Liberals would lose five, six seats, um, Karangamite and Dunkley and then a couple of uh, in the east, and that didn't come to pass. So mm. um, Karangamite was lost, Dunkley was lost, and Labor picked up a new, newly created one. So net three, but it just stopped Queensland, WA, absolute disaster for Labor and not so much a disaster in Victoria. So... What did Scott Morrison do, or was it the, the two, two bad policies, as we now know in hindsight, that Labor put up on um, negative gearing and uh, cranking ferret, ferrets, as I call them? <laughs> um, well, it's the two things, isn't it? It's um, Morrison campaigned very well. He was very disciplined, and he was very good at highlighting the risks um, to people that would come from Labor and Labor's policies. And alternatively, um, Labor had a deeply unpopular leader trying to sell deeply unpopular policies. And um, he, he was struggling. And um, so it was, it was the two things together. Bill Shorten was hopeless, I thought. Fancy not being able to run a campaign against a government that had had three prime ministers in three years. Fancy not being able to run properly. Fancy not oh. being able to <laughs> <laughs> That's a personal reflection. <laughs> um, yes, well... It was more of a, a sped-up waddle, I think. But anyway, that's by the by. Do you, do you think that um, if Malcolm Turnbull had been left alone, which is impossible, of course, that he would have recovered because he was creeping back in all the polls? Um, do you think he could have run a similar sort of campaign as Morrison? Because I think you say Andrew Hurst had laid out the whole campaign anyway, that he yeah. could have done the same thing and won? Yes, I do. Um, I think um, Turnbull would have done better in Victoria. Yeah. I think... Um, 
the Liberals probably would have held Corangamite and Dunkley. Um, and uh, they would have also probably held on to Gilmore and uh, they would have uh, regained um, Herbert. And the polling that um, Turnbull had before he was deposed um, showed all this and also showed that they stood to pick up the seats in Tasmania. So where Morrison ended up was where... Turnbull was uh, when they got rid of him. Now, he probably wouldn't have campaigned as well, I think, as Morrison. He wouldn't have been as disciplined. But um, it would have been the same on-the-ground campaign. It would have been the same negative campaign against um, Shorten that didn't exist in 2016. So you would have had um, all that plus the fact that... um, Malcolm travelled much better in places like Victoria and elsewhere. And Bill Shorten had a few nice words to say to Malcolm Turnbull over the dispatch box. Could you just... Yeah. Uh, This was um, on the Thursday when uh, they decided to adjourn Parliament um, because ministers had been dropping like flies. Everybody was resigning after first pledging their undying loyalty. Um, And uh, so they went in to adjourn the House and uh, Turnbull sat at the table and Shorten was there and Shorten leaned across to him and and said, you didn't deserve this. Um, We know you could have won. So um, that was relayed to me, not by Shorten and not by Turnbull, but by someone else who was sitting at the table Um, who was also quite distraught about what was going on and um, it sort of gave him a little bit of heart to think that there was still a tiny bit of decency in the place. I imagine those who would have an interesting lunch um, in the not-too-distant future to discuss what happened to them. (laughs) Now, we have to talk a bit about Barnaby Joyce, a bit of light relief for a while. He he was seen going to the uh, doctor, doctor clinic um, with his uh, media advisor, Vicky Campion, who was, who was technically his media advisor, and um, that she was getting an X-ray on her stomach, and <laughs> someone thought, well, she's either got a sore stomach or she's pregnant, um, and a Labor Party person saw them, it got reported back, and calls were made, and the Prime Minister rang Barnaby and said, Barnaby, what's going on? And, and what did Barnaby tell the Prime Minister? Right. Well, they'd had a, a meeting before that when the rumours were going around about um, Barnaby and um, he and um, Turnbull had dinner at the lodge and Turnbull did not ask him directly if he was having an affair, but he was asking him about the family and the girls and was everything all right and uh, giving him every opportunity um, to volunteer the information and uh, he didn't. And then a couple of months later, uh, they were spotted at uh, the clinic and, um, and dobbed in. So um, Malcolm asked him down to the office and asked him how come he was going to the doctors with her. And Barnaby gave him this spiel about how she'd had such a terrible upbringing. You know, she had no family that she was close to. She thought she might have had a really serious illness. And he was just going with her as a friend 
and Turnbull asked him directly then whether they were having an affair and he denied it. So um, then he went back to his office, Barnaby, and had an almighty brawl with his chief of staff, uh, whom he blamed unfairly for dobbing him in. In fact, it wasn't her. It was someone from the Labor Party who had seen them at the clinic. So they had a huge screaming match um, in the office and... um, she left soon after and went on sick leave and never came back. Which resulted in the most dangerous policy ever invented by a government, the bonking ban. <laughs> <laughs> Which we hope doesn't spread to Victoria. I mean... Um, well, um, Mel- did, Has it worked? We had two, he's had two, another child How with would her. we know? Well, his I second child, know. maybe. <laughs> I don't look. Um, Malcolm copped a lot of uh, criticism uh, for that, um, and when you think about it, it's extraordinary that the prime minister has to sit down and write a, a code of behaviour to tell his ministers that they shouldn't be on with their staff members, um, which has been going on since time immemorial, really. And if they're not on with staff, they're on with each other, and you know. <laughs> So it would be impossible to police. Um, but never a journalist. Never a journalist. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's been, um, as you said, backstabbing and frontstabbing up there. How do you see the Morrison years or months ahead? And do you think the same thing will happen to him? That eventually, you know, they'll start plotting, or as you say, planning, not plotting, <laughs> um, and drag him down as well? Or because of the rule change, that makes it harder, obviously. The rules can always be changed. By the party room. By the party room. Um, one of the things that um, MPs have said to me already uh, about this rule change is that it makes um, leaders less responsive to the backbench because they think they're safer. So therefore they don't have to listen as closely to what people are, are saying. And uh, they've noticed that their calls aren't being returned as speedily as they used to be. So uh, much depends on how uh, Morrison conducts himself. And I think it's too soon to say he's a very um, he's a very complex individual and he's sort of a loner in many respects. He loves when he's running the show on his own. He loves flying solo. So you can't do that when you're Prime Minister. You have to, even if you don't listen, you have to pretend that you listen at least and take on board what people are saying. So he's got a lot to learn. Was he right when he called um, Canberra the Muppet Show? Uh, I would have said the Munsters rather than the Muppet Show, I think. (laughs) That was a wonderful episode. I so enjoyed our conversation the other night. Jane, well done on the production values. And well done you, Corrie, for creating such a fantastic space at my bookshop. It is lovely having bookshop events inside the bookshop, I agree, rather than a town hall or a library. I think people love being surrounded by books in that way. Of course, we were celebrating Plots and Prayers by Nikki Sava, which is an extraordinary book. And I think the event that we had for this last podcast, which you've just heard, is made all the more special because Nikki said at the very beginning, before we went on air, she said, I'm happy to talk about anything. 
So you don't have to edit. I'm not going to hold back. It's all in the book. I'm prepared to talk. And she did. And I think her candor and her honesty really came through. And I think this book would make a great gift for someone in your family or, you know, a hard to buy for friend who you know was intrigued by all that backstabbing and front stabbing as was pointed out. I think it's going to be a really big book on the Australian landscape this year and especially even towards Christmas. So, Corrie, have you got a recommendation for us this week? I do, Jane, and surprisingly enough, it is the Nikki Sava book, Plots and Prayers. <laughs> No-brainer. <laughs> No-brainer. Well, I think with Father's Day around the corner, it's not a bad one, but I really do want to recommend this. Does it surprise you, Corrie, that politicians don't learn from books like this and, and realise that their stories are going to get out? I mean, I was fascinated by the whole the monkey pod that <laughs> <laughs> you could even hear through the walls of Parliament House, but... How do they keep doing what they do and just being so untrustworthy without realising that there are journos like Nikki out there who will get the story in the end? People may remain tight-lipped while they're in office or in government. It's history repeating itself, isn't (sighs) it? Time and time again, you think they would learn. There is something about the power of office, I think, Jane. People start to think that they're invincible. And maybe some naive politicians think that there is such a thing as party loyalty and confidentiality. Never to be seen in my lifetime, I have to say. If that's an old kind of gentleman's rules, it doesn't exist anymore in Canberra. But I'm so pleased that people do feel the need to tell their version of the story because what happens in the capable hands of a journalist who really is trying hard not to have an agenda of his or herself, that you end up with this story that is a lot of different voices bringing together inevitably what becomes a document of record with a fair bit of truth behind it. So when historians and interested political observers look back on 2018 and say, why did Malcolm Turnbull leave the prime ministership? What actually happened? Where is Julie Bishop? They'll be able to actually read this book and get a much better understanding. So that's my tip for this week. Don't forget that our book of uh, the month or the two-month period for our book club, of course, is The Shepherd's Hut by Tim Winton. We look forward to having a discussion about that in the next few weeks. We'll look forward to seeing you again with our next book pod coming up in a couple of weeks. We have Marie Hardy, who is the Artistic Director of the Melbourne Festival, to talk about what it's like to run a festival. And if you've got any feedback, if you've read The Shepherd's Hut by Tim Winton and you'd like to be part of our book club episode, you can send through a voice memo, you can record your own comments or just send us an email to feedback at thebookpod.com.au. You can check us out on Twitter or Instagram and we'd love to get you involved in those episodes. Yes, and please rate and review us. Not only does it make us feel good, but it does help other people find us. And Jane, what do we say? Happy reading. Happy reading.